0: The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Amen. We can turn your Bibles to Romans 5. We took a week off from Romans last week to do a Thanksgiving sermon and back at it for the next few weeks. Lord willing, Romans chapter 5, and our text for today is going to be verses 6 through 11. Uh, But before we read the text, I think we all understand that security is a really important ingredient to just about any healthy relationship. So for example, a strong marriage has to be anchored in the understanding that I love you no matter what, and I'm not going anywhere no matter what may happen. And, uh, and, and children also desperately need the assurance that their parents love them and that they're going to be there and care for them no matter what. And I think you know, a big reason that so many children today are broken and lost and angry and depressed is just the fact that they don't have that security at home, that rest at home that they so desperately need. And, and I could give plenty of other examples. Security is is essential to strong friendships. It's essential as a church that that we are secure in our relationships to each other and in all sorts of other relationships. And so in light of the importance of security to relationships, it, it really is stunning to think about the fact that almost every religion in the world is absent of any sort of genuine assurance. So think of the Greek religions of Paul's day. The Greek religions of Paul's day, there was no assurance involved. Instead, it was really, Greek religion was really just one long game of manipulation between the gods and men to get what they wanted. Hinduism and Buddhism, they don't have any sort of of clear understanding of of assurance. Islam teaches that no one can be sure of how the last judgment will turn out for them. And Catholicism also denies any possibility of assurance regarding your ultimate standing with God. And it's tragic. Because there's no way that I can truly relate to God as my Father unless I know that He is my Father and always will be. And assurance of salvation transforms how I worship God. How I pray to God. Uh, how I approach spiritual growth and, and my view of eternity and death. It is foundational to everything. If I don't know that I'm safe with God, th- then it changes how I approach the entire Christian life. And, and Paul understood that, and therefore, assurance of salvation is one of the primary themes that dominates Romans 5 through 8. And, and our text for today. It is a wonderful contribution to the discussion and a wonderful comfort to those of us who are in Christ. So Let's read Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. The text says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this. But we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This passage is built on three glorious reasons why we as Christians can have assurance. And the first reason in verses six through eight is we know that God loves us. We know that God loves us. And now, now, before we get into these verses, remember where we are in our study of Romans. So, so Romans 5, verse 1 begins this section by declaring that we have been justified by faith. And then uh, two weeks ago, last time we were in the study, we saw in verses 1 through 5 that, that Paul then follows with five benefits that flow out of justification by faith. And the last benefit he mentions in verse 5 uh, of chapter 5 is that the Holy Spirit actually assures the believer that God loves us. So, so he comes alongside me and he helps me know and he helps me believe that God is love and not just that God is love, God loves me. It's an incredible ministry of the Holy Spirit. But verses 6 through 8 follow here by declaring that God has given us all an even greater reason to know that God loves us in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that is that God has proven his love to us in the cross of Christ. And so what is so amazing about God's love? Well, these verses meditate on the wonder of God's love as it is displayed in the cross. And to appreciate that the point that Paul is making, this incredible love of God, Paul says that we have to appreciate the love of God From the simple backdrop of the fact that we are unlovable. We are unlovable. And Paul makes this painful point with three painful descriptions of what we are in our natural state. So, first of all, he says in verse 6, while we were still helpless. So, when God found you, you were helpless. Now, now, when I think of helplessness, I, my mind naturally runs to a newborn baby. And, and when you think of a newborn baby, a, a, a newborn baby cannot do anything for himself, right? You know, I mean, there's, there's other babies in the world. And, of course, I grew up on a farm and a baby cow or a baby, well, a baby cow can do a little bit for himself, but a baby human being, I mean, they are absolutely helpless. You know, they, they, they can only see a few inches in front of their face they're completely immobile and despite what every mother wants to think there's not a whole lot going on up here yet when they're first born and about the only power that a newborn has is to cry and and when they cry you know that can a uh, signal that they need something or sometimes those cries are enough to annoy you into doing something about it that maybe you wouldn't otherwise but but a baby can't actually do anything to meet his own needs he can't go get food He can't feed himself, he can't dress himself, he can't stay warm. A a newborn would have no, no chance of survival without help. And in a similar way, God is saying to us in this passage that we are all born into this world spiritually helpless. We're born slaves to sin. We can't please God. And we can't measure up to his standard of perfection no matter how hard we might try. Now, now, no one likes to think of himself as helpless. In fact, our our six-month-old baby is already at the point where you try and put the pacifier in his mouth and and he wants to do it himself. He doesn't want to be helpless. And neither do you. But, But the Bible says that we are all spiritually helpless. We had nothing to offer God when God came to us. And then second, verse to six, describes us as ungodly. It says, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, now, most people are willing to admit that they are imperfect. I've never met anyone who thinks that they are truly perfect. But I don't think anyone likes to think of himself as ungodly, right? Just sounds horrible. You know, but, but, but God says here that when he found me I was not like God. In fact, I hated God. I did not worship God, and I rebelled against His authority. I was ungodly. And then third, verse 8 describes us as sinners. Now, Now, most people, again, they don't mind admitting that they sin occasionally. But most people refuse to see themselves as sinners. Like, like, they'll say, yeah, I sin, but I'm not a sinner. I, I, I'm not that bad of a person. But, but, but they, they don't want to see sin as an essential aspect of their character. But God says, we are sinners. I don't just make occasional mistakes. I don't just, once in a while, act out of character and do something I shouldn't do. No, when I sin, I am acting in character. I am being what I was born as. So sin, not godliness, shapes and and, and characterizes my heart. So folks, there is nothing about us, there's nothing about me, and there is nothing about you that God should find attractive. But what is so amazing about God's love is that God did not turn away from you in your helpless, ungodly condition. He didn't run from you. No, instead, verses six through eight emphasize the fact that God loved us while we were still helpless. So, so think about that. I mean, God didn't sit in heaven and say, I will love Kit Johnson when Kit you know, gets, you know, makes these ten steps. You know, God didn't make some deal where he would meet me halfway. No. What's he say here? God loved us, he emphasizes in, in both verses six and eight that God loved us in our helpless condition. And let me try and illustrate just how incredible this is. You know, let's suppose that tomorrow you go out shopping, and while you're out shopping, you come across a 75-year-old homeless man in a wheelchair who's, who's out asking for money. And you see this man, and, and he looks pretty sad and despairing, and your heart goes out to him, and so you go up to this man and you begin to visit with him. But as you begin to talk, you find out quickly that not only is this man in a wheelchair, his mind is basically gone. He's not really making much sense and you can't quite understand him. And he's a bit of a jerk. He's not kind. He's not thankful. I mean, he is demanding and he's rude and obnoxious. And after talking to him for a bit, you realize that he brought all of his suffering on himself. He, his knees were shattered in a gang fight when he was young. That's why he can't walk and... His mind has been wasted and destroyed by drug use over years and years. And, and you feel bad for this guy, and you might decide to buy him lunch or do some things to help him out. But most people are not lining up to give their life for someone like that. And certainly, I, I doubt there's anyone who would sacrifice their own son to save someone in that sort of condition. And yet God's love is incredible because God loved us while we were still helpless and while we were yet sinners. Now, God didn't wait for you to clean up your act, get your life in good order, and then he would love you. No. And he didn't didn't ask you to, to prove yourself to him before he would love you either. No, God loved us while we were helpless, ungodly sinners. And folks, that is absolutely amazing. God loved the unlovable. And, 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 now, and then Paul goes on to expand on this some more in verse 7 by, by noting that sinners will sometimes love lovable people. So verse 7 says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. So, so Paul says there that at times, uh, people are willing to give their lives for someone else. And specifically, he mentions here people who are a righteous or people who are good. And those terms are, of course, pretty similar in meaning, though there seems to be a little bit of different nuance and meaning between them here. So, so first of all, a righteous person is probably speaking of someone who just simply does what is right. You know, it could be your neighbor. And uh, he quietly lives a good life and doesn't do anything to irritate you. You appreciate neighbors like that. You know, it could be an old lady down the street, goes to church every Sunday and spends the rest of her time out in her yard and uh, making her house nice. And occasionally, someone might be willing to die for a righteous person. You know, if a young child is riding a bike down the street and someone sees a car's about to hit him, they... They might be willing to jump out in the street and, and pull that kid in and arrest, you know, at risk of their own life. Of firemen, uh, policemen, and various uh, other people will, will give their lives to, to save others. And we are moved by those stories, right? Because they are unusual and they are incredible. And it's not that often that you hear about someone giving his or her life to save even a righteous person. And then Paul adds that it's somewhat more understandable for someone to give his life for a good person. Now, now good here in context uh, probably refers to someone who, who gives his life not just for a righteous person, but for someone that you know. So it's not just that you give your life for a kid, that, the stranger that's going down the street, but, but you give your life for your child. Or, or it's not just you know, a, an old lady down the street, it's your grandmother. And again here, you know, this is not uh, totally out of character. So, so parents, I think just about every parent would be willing to give your life to save your kid. You know, a, a husband or a father ought to be willing to sacrifice his life for his family. You know, soldiers will, will be willing to die to, to rescue their, their brothers. And, and again, those kinds of stories are generally considered the pinnacle of human love. I mean, we make movies. We write books about people who make those kinds of sacrifices. And and so they're incredible. In fact, we'd say that those are the greatest acts of human valor. And we celebrate them because they're rare. So so verse 7 notes that, that people are rarely willing to give their lives for others. And even when we do give our lives for others, we give our lives for good people. Again, not many people are lining up to give their lives for that homeless man I mentioned earlier. And I certainly, again, wouldn't give one of my son's lives for that man. And It goes against everything that's within us. But of course, that leaves us as sinners with a big problem. Because in comparison to God, in comparison to God, I am much more like that homeless man than I am like some innocent child. And, and, and so if God were like us, you know, I mean, think about the fact that when God found us, he found a helpless, ungodly sinner. And, and folks, you will never appreciate the gospel. You will never appreciate the love of God until you really wrap your mind around the fact that there was nothing in you that was worthy of the love of God. And if God were like you, and if God were like me, then he would never sacrifice his son for us. But aren't you thankful that God isn't like us? And God didn't just turn his back on us in our sin. No, instead, Paul goes on to say in verse 8 that God loved the unlovable. And verse 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's an incredible verse. And the verb here, died, of course died is a pretty simple verb, we all understand what it means. But it here represents an incredible act of love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now I can't imagine sacrificing one of my son's lives for someone else. Can you imagine doing that? Giving your son or your daughter's life on behalf of another person. It's incredible. You know, God's love there was amazing. And, and of course, Jesus also demonstrated incredible love because he suffered brutally on the cross. He was brutally beaten. He, he endured maybe the worst form of, of human execution that's ever been devised. And on top of everything and above everything else, he bore God's wrath against the sins of humanity. And that fact, the the gift of Christ and the suffering of Christ, stands for all time as a powerful demonstration of God's love. God demonstrated, he proved his love on the cross. And what Paul wants to say to us here is that demonstration of love should provide us with wonderful assurance. If you were to go around Apple Valley and ask people, do you believe that God loves you? I would venture to guess that most people would say yes. You know, and they'd say something like, I feel like God loves me. Or I, I think God loves me. I mean, aren't you thankful that if, you know, if I ask you, do you believe that God loves you, you? You don't just have to say, I feel like God loves me. You can say, God proved it. Jesus died on the cross. I have no reason to ever doubt the love of God, no matter what's going on around me, because God proved his love. He demonstrated his love when Jesus died on that cross. So so maybe there's someone here that, that you've never come to grips with the reality of what God is saying in these verses. And maybe you've spent your whole life hoping that God loves you. And maybe you've spent your whole life trying to merit the love of God. You think, you know, if I I just get a little bit further, if I just get over this little issue in my life, if I can just solve this problem, then I will reach a point where God will meet me halfway or even 75% of the way. But you feel like you've got to get to a certain point before God will, will follow with his own love. And I hope that you'll see that that is impossible. You will never reach a point where you are worthy of the love of God. But, but you don't have to, because God loves helpless, ungodly sinners. He is generous and kind, and he proved it in the death of Christ. So, so stop trying to earn the love of God, and just rest in his generous kindness. Because if you put your faith in Christ for salvation, you can receive the salvation he provided, and you can be adopted into the family of God. It's incredible. So, so, so if you're trying to get there yourself, just let go today and trust in Jesus. Or maybe you're a Christian and, and you came into the service today, I mean, saved, but, but in your heart doubting God's love for you. you know, maybe you failed him this week. Maybe you broke his will and, and you came in discouraged and you know, kind of disenchanted because of your sin. You're, you're burdened with guilt. Or maybe it is that that you're just having a hard time seeing the love of God through the fog of, of affliction and suffering in your life. It's hard to see how God loves you in the midst of all that you're enduring. Well, look to the cross and be assured that God proved his love when Jesus died on the cross. And you don't ever have to question it. You don't ever have to doubt it. We know that God loves us because he proved it. In Christ. So come to Jesus and rest in him. And so the love of God is a wonderful reason for us to have assurance. But then a second reason why we can have assurance is because we know that we will reach heaven. So, so notice what Paul goes on to say in verses 9 and 10. He says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, now notice the logic of both of these verses. Both of these verses make an argument from what you could say from the greater to the lesser. So, so in other words, since God already accomplished the harder thing, we can be certain that he will accomplish the simpler thing. And in both verses, the simpler thing that he will accomplish is salvation from the wrath of God and entrance into heaven. So so the point of these two verses is to assure us that we will reach glory someday. And so they're here to provide wonderful assurance regarding our eternal destiny. And so let's walk through the the three works that are going on in, in these two verses. First of all, one of the past works that God has already accomplished is that God has justified us. God has justified us. So, so verse 9 says, having now been justified by his blood. Now, the last couple of months, we've talked a lot about justification. So if you've been here, if you've been part of the series, hopefully at this point, you have a fairly firm grasp of what justification is. But hopefully, we, we never lose sight of just what an incredible miracle it is. Because again, we're all born helpless, ungodly sinners. But through the shed blood of Christ, God satisfied his own wrath. And therefore, when I put my faith in Christ for salvation, the blood of Christ is applied to my account, and I go from guilty to declared by God not guilty. And it's incredible that God could justly declare a sinner like me not guilty. Guilty. And so, even though my sin deserves God's eternal wrath, I will never face condemnation. So, justification is an incredible miracle of God. And don't ever lose sight of how incredible that is, no matter how familiar it is. And then the second great work that God has accomplished is that God has reconciled us to Himself. So so while verse 9 talks in terms of a courtroom and a legal standing. Uh, Verse 10 talks in terms of relationship. So verse 10 says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Now, Now that verse begins with another sobering description of who we are. We've seen that we're helpless, we're ungodly, we're sinners, and now Paul says, we are enemies of God. That's a heavy one. You know, because no one likes to think of himself as an enemy of God. But the Bible is clear that that's how we enter the world, and, and we saw that. When we were back in chapter 1 a couple of months ago, we, we saw that, that sinners are so hostile to God that they would rather worship animals than worship the true God. And, and we also saw, it says in chapter 1, that we are born into this world haters of God. Now, now no one wants to admit that they're a hater of God. But when it comes down to the fruit of their life, they are. Chapter 3, verse 11 says, There is none who seeks for God apart from divine intervention. So you were born into this world not as a friend of God. You were born hostile to God. And as a result, the Bible teaches that that hostility is mutual. In fact, Psalm 7 says, Verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Now, of course, God's indignation is not like my indignation. It is not irrational. It's never out of control. It is never just cranky, selfish irritability. It is No, instead, he tells us here that God is a righteous judge. And so his only proper response as a righteous judge to my sin is wrath. So a lot is at stake, returning to our text, when he says there that we were enemies of God. And sinners like us and a holy good, a holy God should never be friends. There is enmity, there is hostility between us and him. But while there's nothing I could do to resolve the conflict between me and God, God could resolve the conflict. And he did. And God says to us here in verse 10 that he reconciled us to himself. Now, now reconciliation, that's kind of a big word, probably not a word that you use all that often, but it is a wonderful gospel concept. And Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 22 do an excellent job of explaining to us what it is that God reconciles us to himself. It says there, for it was the Father's good pleasure through him, speaking of Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself having made peace, right? That's the key concept of reconciliation, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, there's some other you know, good, you know, you know, puff up your, your sense of self-worth type words. Not really. No, I mean, look at that. We are alienated, hostile, engaged in evil deeds. Yet the miracle of God's grace is yet now he has reconciled you in his flesh, in his fleshly body through death. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That God didn't just eliminate the legal penalty for our sins. You know, it would be one thing if you did something horrible and you go in the courtroom and somehow you, you're let off the hook. You know, you, you, get, you get out of jail off of a glitch. But God didn't just eliminate the penalty for our sins. He also provided reconciliation. He provided relationship to himself. Robert Peterson says, Reconciliation is peacemaking. It involves God's taking the initiative to make friends out of enemies. That's incredible. We sang last Sunday, Once your enemies, now seated at your table. It's not just that I'm no longer going to hell. I am seated at the table of God. We are members of his family. We are friends of God. And so verses 9 and 10 mention two incredible past works for all who are in Christ. We are justified and we are reconciled to God. And Paul reminds us that these incredible past works of God assure us that God will surely accomplish a third work and a future work, which is that God will surely save us. So notice the future assurance that that these two verses provide in verses 9 and 10. It says, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. And then verse 10 says, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, now you might find that language a bit confusing because when we talk about getting saved, we, we generally think in terms of the moment of our conversion. So you might say, I got saved when I was six years old. And, and that's perfectly appropriate and right. Because, for example, Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's clearly looking back to the moment that you believed on Christ and you were born again. So, so it is appropriate to speak of salvation primarily in terms of the moment of my conversion. But the Bible also talks about salvation oftentimes as a future salvation. And that's what our text is doing here. Because in both verses. Salvation is in the future tense. So it's looking forward to something. Still coming for the believer. And, um, and so. Specifically the Bible teaches. That in the end. Every one of us. Is going to stand before God. We're going to give an account of our lives. And the Bible teaches. That in the end of that judgment. God will either. Condemn us to eternal fire in hell. Or he will welcome us into eternal glory in heaven. Now, now that is a huge moment, right? I mean, there's nothing in life more important than, than, the, than the final verdict that comes in that day. And so, and so how, can I be, how can I know that I will be saved in that day and welcomed into paradise? Well, well, the reason I know that God will save me in that day and receive me into glory is because He has already accomplished the more difficult works of justification and reconciliation. So, So Paul's logic here is that if God has already declared a sinner like me not guilty, and if He has taken His enemy and turned me into His friend, then how could He possibly turn me away At that final judgment someday. I know that I will be saved. That's the point. So so yes, the Christian life is filled with all sorts of uncertainties. I don't know what challenges are ahead. I I don't know what, what suffering might be ahead. I don't know how Satan might tempt my flesh. And I certainly can't trust myself. But I can trust the sovereign purpose of God that God will save me in that day. So when Satan tempts you to fear or to doubt, remember what God has already done for you in justification and reconciliation. And be assured that he will bring you to heaven someday. And then let that assurance that I am going to heaven, I know I'm safe in Christ, let that assurance shape all of life. So don't live for this world. Live for eternity. Lay up treasures in heaven. Don't fear or be intimidated by the evil forces of this world. Rest in the promises of God every day. And if you're not saved, I want to urge you to be reconciled to God. You can't reconcile yourself to God. There's nothing you can do to, to meet God halfway or to fix enough that you merit His love. And you can face your final day of judgment one of two ways. You you can face it hoping that you've done enough to get to heaven, which by the way, you will never do enough. Or you can receive Christ and you can be reconciled to God. So believe on Christ. Trust in Him and be reconciled to God not through anything in you but through the blood of Christ. And if you do that, you can face that day not hoping you make it, but sure that you will make it. And that's a wonderful, wonderful assurance. And then the third reason for assurance is that we know God as our Father. We know God as our Father. So in other words, what what Paul's going to say here in verse 11 is that the benefits of Christ's death are not just in the past when I received Christ as Savior, and then in the future when I stand before Him at the end, no, Christ's death also gives me confidence today. So he says in verse 11, and not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now, now this is actually the third time in, in this text, verses 1 through 11, that Paul has used this verb exalt. So he said in verse 2 that we exalt in hope of the glory of God, so we boast in the glory that's awaiting us. And then he said in verses three and four, we exalt in tribulations because we know how God is refining us through them. And now he uses the same verb again at the end of this passage to pull it all together to say, we also exalt in God. And I said two weeks ago that this verb exalt means to, to, to pick, it speaks of firm confidence. You know, something that you know is going to happen, and so you boast in what you're sure is going to take place. But you might wonder, well, what does it practically mean to boast in God? How, how do I, does that mean like I have like a big like God t-shirt that I wear around? And, um, you know, that I, you know, I, you know who knows what, what that means? Well, well, the answer to that question is that verses 1 through 11 have painted for us a beautiful picture of a secure, confident relationship with God. That's really what verses one through eleven are all about. So right at the heart of it is the fact that God loves us and He proved it on the cross. The first benefit of justification he listed in verse one is that we are at peace with God. We we are we are near to God. We have access to grace. Verses three and four said that, that we have strength and in him to overcome whatever challenges life might bring. And we know that we are going to heaven someday. And so when he says, when he wraps it all up by saying, I can boast in God. He means I can boast in my relationship to God, knowing that that relationship to God is absolutely secure and it's not going anywhere. You know, so, so salvation, folks, I mean, I'm so thankful today that salvation is not like junior high dating. And a silly illustration, but I remember in high school, I, one of my classmates, she told me that in junior high, she had 14 different boyfriends. Isn't that crazy? You know, in two years, 14 different boyfriends. That's pretty finicky. And so, you know, someone who cycles through 14 different guys, you know, probably she told every one of them that she loved him, and he told her that he loved her, you know, so someone that finicky, you, you don't boast in your relationship to a girl like that. You imagine some you know, scrawny 13-year-old boy standing by his locker at school and and he tells his buddies, Yep, I'm dating Heather. And then there she goes down the hall on the arm of another guy. Right? That's <laughs> so what's gonna happen. You you don't boast in that kind of relationship because it is finicky, it is insecure. But what Paul is saying here. Is that as a Christian, you can boast all you want in your relationship to God. You can tell everyone, God is my father. And I am going to heaven someday. I belong to him. I am in Christ. And you can boast as much as you want with absolute assurance and confidence. Because God will never despise the work of his son. And he has proven his love He has demonstrated his care. His grace is always sufficient. So God is your father. You are his child. And God is saying to us in verses 1 through 11 that nothing can change that. Nothing in this world, nothing from the pit of hell, nothing in your heart, nothing can take that away. And that is certainly solid grounds for boasting. So I can glory in my Redeemer. And say he's my redeemer. I can worship God for the gift of the gospel. I can give thanks to to one another. We can give thanks with each other for for what God has done for us. We can boast in God and do so with absolute security and confidence. So aren't you thankful for the doctrines of eternal security and assurance? Those are doctrines that that maybe at times we, we take for granted. But they are a wonderful anchor to the soul. That, that I don't have to live my life, you know, walking around hoping I make it, hoping I've done enough to make God happy, hoping that, that I don't do something dreadful and lose the salvation that's mine. No, I am absolutely secure, and God's grace will carry me through every challenge and keep me on the path that leads to glory. And so if you struggle to feel secure in your relationship to God, I mean, you, you know, we sing songs about the love of God, we sing songs about heaven, and you sit there and you always kind of wonder, eh, is that really mine or not? Then I hope you'll see that, that your faith will never flourish and you will never mature until you deal with the issue of assurance of salvation. And so God is here to tell you that you can have it. And so believe what God says and let it work down deep into your soul. And don't base your assurance. If I ask you, do you know you're going to heaven? The first place you look is not to how you feel. Do I feel like I'm going to heaven? The first place you look is a passage like this that says God demonstrated his love and God will surely save those who are his. We anchor our assurance in the promises of God. And from there, it works itself out. So, so believe what God says and let it work down and deep into your soul. And God loves his children and God will not abandon his children. So, so if you're in Christ, you should rejoice today in the doctrine of assurance. But of course, don't let that doctrine of assurance lead to apathy. You know, that, hey, I'm going to heaven, so now I can do what I want. No, no be amazed at who God is Be amazed at all that he provided for you in Christ and then pursue him as the greatest treasure of your soul. Because he is the only one, he is the only one who is worthy of the devotion and the sacrifice and the passion of your heart. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much today for your love. God, your love really is amazing. It is full of grace and mercy, and abundant kindness. And so, God, thank you today for your love, and thank you for the assurances of the gospel, the promises of Scripture, that, that Lord, are an anchor, a bedrock of the soul. And so, God, I pray for any here who do not know Jesus as Savior, that, Lord, today they would trust in Christ and be born again. And for those of us who know you as Savior, Lord, I pray that every day we would keep our minds and our hearts anchored to these basic truths of Scripture. That we would believe in the character of your love. That we would rest in the power of the cross and the promises that you give for the future. And Lord, may we approach the Christian life with absolute certainty, confidence, and assurance. And so God, strengthen us this week to believe you and to walk accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.